0: If you have your Bibles, Open up to the book of 1 Corinthians. As a church, we are travailing through the letter of 1 Corinthians, this letter that Paul wrote to a church in ancient the, the ancient Roman Empire, um, and his primary challenge throughout the entire letter is to see all of life through the lens of the gospel, every single part of it, even the hard parts, even the churchy parts, even the uh, parts that are normally taboo to talk about in polite company, everything through the lens of the gospel. And someone once said, our lives must find their place in some greater story, or they will find some place in a lesser story. That our lives have to find their place in a greater story, or they will find their place in a lesser story. We all ache to be part of a story bigger than ourselves. As much as we like to champion our individualism and our pull-ourselves-up-by-the-bootstraps-ism, we ache to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And what Paul is doing in our text today that we're going to be in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is he's laying out a case for two different kinds of worldviews and that you can't choose both. That you have to choose one or the other. Two different stories with different value systems, with different judgments on what is right and wrong, wisdom and what is foolishness. There are two different stories. And I actually believe, and as I've been sorting through this text for the last two weeks, I actually believe this is quite a, a prophetic text for our church. And I, and I guess I could say that about every single passage that we read, uh, but there's something that, that was unique to what is going on in here that I the kind of that extra attention from the Lord to pay attention to this anthem church just kind of one of those moments as we've been reading and the reason I believe it is so profound is I think too often we and I'll say we specifically as anthem church in downtown Ventura in 2019 but also just we the church in America or Southern California we try try to straddle both stories. We try to seek God and get everything the world has to offer. We try to have our cake and eat it too. We want the things of the world and we want God. And that leaves us in this constant state of internal dissonance of wanting the things of God, but not always seeing them come to bear in our lives, or not as sensitive to his voice in our lives, or not that breakthrough that we've been wanting or hoping for because we are still trying to have it both ways. I see this in my life all the time. I love you. I see it in your life all the time. I see it in the Christian life all the time, especially in Southern California where there is so much opportunity not to depend on God for things because we can make it ourselves. If we just make enough money, we can, you know, house and feed ourselves and our family and we're not crying out to him. If we're clever enough or wise enough, we can rearrange the chess pieces in our life to work out the way we want it to work. And Paul is advocating for something very, very different in this text. It's actually a plea from Paul not to buy into the stories of this world. Because in God's eyes, the stories of this world are foolishness. They are folly. They are not the way of true life, but to trust in the way and the wisdom of God, whose wisdom is so far apart from the world's wisdom that it seems like foolishness to this world. That's what Paul's plea is through this text. And where we're at in the text, in chapter 1, verse 18, this one verse serves as a bit of a thesis for everything that's coming next. we got a lot of te- to work through today. We're going to do it. I promise you we'll make it through. But keep this in mind. Verse 18 serves as a thesis or a foundation for what Paul is going to write in this next session. And he says in verse 18, "...for the word of the cross is folly." "...or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God." So Paul's continuing this thought, if you were here last week or if you read the the paragraph before, he's continuing this thought from last week about preaching the gospel and the power of the cross. He didn't come with eloquent words or fancy sophistry or philosophy, but instead he's preaching the simple message of Jesus Christ crucified. And he compares and contrasts the world's wisdom or the Greek word Sophia with Uh, the Moriah or the foolishness of God. And he's about to say that even what seems like foolishness to us is more wise than the wisdom of men and women in the world. And what he does is he unpacks this verse right here, this key theme in three different areas. He gives us three case studies, if you will, for what he is positing to us. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he gives us three examples. And the first is the cross itself. It's foolishness to the world, but it is the wisdom of God. And in the church, He shifts his attention to the church and says, you even yourselves, the way you live, the way you act is foolishness to the world, but it is the wisdom of God. And then Paul then takes the lens back to himself and says, even in how I came to you preaching and teaching, it was foolish to the world, but it is the wisdom of God. So he gives us three examples. So let's read verse 18 and then pick up a little bit more. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And so he's basically like listing off every kind of different person with their background, right? When he says, Where is the wise? he's thinking of the Greeks who idolize intellectualism and philosophy and sophistry. And when he says, The scribe, he's talking about the the teachers and the debaters of the law of the scriptures. He says, where is the debater of this age? Has God made had not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul's speaking to a whole group of people and some Greeks who didn't necessarily have an understanding of the Old Testament scriptures and some with a Jewish background who did. And his point is regardless of where you come from, regardless of what culture you bring to the table, when we think about the gospel message, regardless of that background, the cross will turn your concept of wisdom and power upside down. Right? If you are a Greek who idolize intellectualism and man's wisdom, the cross will turn that wisdom and power upside down. If you are a Jew coming in with all of these preconceived notions about what this Messiah would be like, the cross turns that wisdom and power upside down. Corinth is an odd city, if we remember some of our background. They had this fascination with sophistry or, or public eloquent speaking that was dressed up in a form of public entertainment, and these traveling sophists would come to town and, and deliver their wisdom, and they would attract disciples and followers, and it was a very lucrative business to be doing that, and the people in Corinth were obsessed with them. It was their entertainment. They would be out in the public square, and one sophist would come and deliver his wisdom or his truth, and people would debate it, and people would follow him or not follow him or whatever. And so this was laden. They were obsessed with public speaking. It was laid into the culture of the city. Uh, The public speaking was an art form. It was entertainment and people would line up behind their guy or their guy or whatever. And this created this tribalism and factions that bled into the church. And so Paul is addressing all the divisions in the church because people have their focus off Jesus and on the messenger have it on, I'm a Paul guy, I'm an Apollos guy, I'm a Peter guy, whatever, and they would take their eyes off the message and put it on the messenger. And this fascination and obsession with sophists created this culture of intellectualism that prized wisdom above everything else. Knowledge, acumen, being seen as a somebody, And as a proud Roman city that upheld these values, you were a somebody if you were wise in the eyes of man. And Paul, what he does is start to chip away at that idea, chip away at that false belief that if you are wise before men, you are truly wise. And he says, no, if you are living and following the wisdom of God, you will look like a fool to this world. Because God's wisdom is so far apart. The gap is so wide that it will look like craziness to the people who do not know God. And what he does is he kind of breaks up a few different categories. Like that he breaks up the wisdom of the world into two categories. And then he creates a third category here. So let's go in verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Those are the two categories. Jews who are demanding signs and Greeks seeking wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to those Jews demanding signs and folly to Gentiles who are seeking wisdom. But to those who are called, remember that word called, right? Who's Paul writing to here, Christians or non Christians? Christians, Christians. to those who are called. Both Jews and Greeks, no matter what your background is, if you have been called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Men And as Paul divvies up his two categories, Jews who demand a sign and Greeks who seek wisdom, Jews who demanding a sign is a callback to the ministry of Jesus himself, all the way back in Matthew chapter 16. So if you have a Bible, flip over to Matthew chapter 16 with me. This is a callback. Paul deliberately is using language, especially for those who were in and around Galilee at the time of Jesus, to remember what Jesus had said to people who were asking for a sign. And in chapter 16, verse 1, the Pharisees, right, the leaders and teachers and the Sadducees came to test Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Has Jesus ever shown a sign from heaven in his ministry before? Has Jesus done signs, wonders, miracles? Yeah, all the time. Notice why this time might be different. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. What's that sign of Jonah? Does anyone remember that? I know this is reaching back into our minds, but do you guys remember the story of Jonah? Right, this long story short, God sent this prophet to go deliver a message to save a people. He refuses. He gets eaten up by a huge fish and he's in the belly of this huge fish for how many days? Three days. Does that sound familiar when thinking about Jesus? Jesus died and three days later was raised to life. He's saying the resurrection is the sign, is the only sign that matters. He's saying my resurrection is enough for you. So they left him and departed. What is curious about the story is Jesus frequently provides signs, wonders, and miracles, but never on demand. He will grant the plea of those who come to him in faith, believing he is Lord and say, please heal my son, heal my daughter, heal my servant. He honors those moments to those who are unexpecting and unawares. He comes by and gives sight and gives hearing to the deaf, but never to those who are seeking a sign from heaven to test him. Jews demand a sign. And the cross is a stumbling block because they had all these perceived, preconceived notions about who the Messiah would be and what he would be like. They thought he's going to be a military ruler, a political ruler, someone to give them physical and tangible land, give them their land back, give them honor and victory in their world. And Jesus came as a poor peasant itinerant rabbi going from town to town being kicked out and rejected by the elite and those with social status only to be put to death by the state. This was not the Messiah they were expecting and it was a stumbling block for Jews who demand a sign. They were after a God who would prove himself and God is saying that is not the way I work. And to the second category, to the Greeks who seek wisdom, this Greeks is kind of a catch-all phrase for Paul, uh, for people who would emphasize uh, strength and and power, and and those who were cultured, those in the Roman Empire who were educated or in this intellectual elite kind of class, and, and they who emphasize external wisdom and strength and power, the cross is utter foolishness to them. Like, who would believe this nonsense? The way to have power is to win, not to die. This would be foolishness to them. The cross is folly to the Gentiles. It's not the wisdom of this world. If you were the king of the universe, the savior of all people, then you come in victory. And we as Christians know that day will come, but that was not his first coming. How many people think you are crazy for what you believe? If you are a Christian, I'm not assuming everyone in the room is a Christian, and maybe if you're not, do you think we're crazy for what we believe? How many people think that you're just out of your mind for what you believe? When we did Alpha over the summertime last year, we were put face to face with a number of people who who could not believe Christians believe the things they believe. It struck them as utter foolishness because it does not conform to the wisdom of this world. In this third category he creates, Jews demanding a sign, wanting God to prove himself and Gentiles seeking wisdom, is to those who are called. right? The Christians, the followers of Jesus, the cross is the power and wisdom of God. He says to those who are called, here's true power, here's true wisdom, a crucified Messiah turning the world upside down not conforming to any expectation that we might have had. And this upside-down perspective on power is intended to have profound ramifications in our lives here and now. The power of the cross changes how we live here and now. It lifts up the lowly, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. It says you have value, you have honor in the kingdom of God. And we see this in Jesus frequently. At one point in the story of Jesus, right around Mark chapter 10, right? Jesus goes out of his way. He's on his way to Jericho, and, and he's on his way to Jerusalem, from Jericho through to Jerusalem. And, and he encountered this blind beggar, and he takes a little detour with this beggar. And he went on to heal the beggar, which is a profound, another moment of Jesus' healing power here in the world. And uh, in Mark 10, we actually know his name. His name is Bartimaeus. And... I don't know if that sticks out to you or I as odd. To those maybe receiving this biography of Jesus in the first or second century or something like that, or to those who were with Jesus, being named in literature was a place of honor reserved for the top of society, not for blind beggars. Jesus goes out of his way to encounter the lowly and to give them value and dignity. Right, This individual who might normally be passed over right? Nameless, anonymous. And even if Jesus did go to him and heal, it's not a story worth mentioning. Let's talk about the centurion and his servant, you know, the grand. Let's talk about the Pharisees. Let's not talk about the people who have nothing to add to society. And Jesus says, I'm coming to flip that upside down. Those who you see as last will be first. Those who have no dignity and value in the society have dignity and value in my family and my kingdom. The Bible generously represents the marginalized, the lepers, the prostitutes, the criminals. They're deliberately attracted to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't shoo them away. He embraces them and reaches out to them and meets them in that place, heals them, and sets them free. If we don't think we have limitations in life, we are not going to understand the gospel paradigm of an upside-down framework If you think you are invincible and have everything you need to succeed in life, the upside-down kingdom will not make sense to you. Because throughout the Bible, especially Paul, but all the Bible writers, emphasize our weakness, our humility. And that's how we can depend on God to come through. God loves to use the weak. He loves to use the meek. He loves to use those who are humble so his glory can be put on display. And when we don't buy into that, when we get into the frame of mind of thinking, I'm achieving, I'm earning, I'm pursuing, and I will gain everything I need to get, we have no framework for failure and setback because then our identity is shaking and crushed and crumbled. You get fired from your job tomorrow. How crushed are you? That level of crushedness probably depends on how much you are depending on the Lord. Right? If you are go into this huge depression, if you, and it's not wrong to be sad. Like, those are hard life moments, of course, but if your identity is all wrapped up in that, your life falls apart. But if our identity is all wrapped up in Jesus, and the power of his cross, and the wisdom of God, there's a readiness to say, what do you have next for me, Lord? Because that wasn't it. What do you have next for me? Or in the words of Isaiah, here I am, send me. What do you have? From the perspective of human power grasping, the cross doesn't make sense. Right? God's power can be called nothing but weakness. Right? He finally intervenes in human history in the person of Jesus Christ, and he's put to death. That makes no sense. That's the end of the story. That's it. There's no power in being crucified. That's the ultimate display of weakness and vulnerability and frailty. And God's weak power is this declaration of man's ultimate powerlessness as it relates to our relationship with God. Paul's saying God's power is giving up one's own power. And if power is the ultimate cultural value, then this is nothing short the cross of a scandal. This doesn't make sense to us. It upends everything we believe, and it was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. For us, we know the cross isn't the end. It wasn't a disappointment. It's the power and wisdom of God on display, putting to shame the authorities of this present age. And Paul claims that real power and real wisdom are not found in the world's stories They're found in God. And in this next section, as he starts to shift his attention to the church themselves, he uses them and says, consider your own calling as a church. Humility is required to experience God. Consider how you were encountered by the gospel message. And back in 1 Corinthians 1 Picking up in verse 26, he says, For consider your own calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, a.k.a. you guys were not as awesome as you think you were, right? You were not wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He's using their not-so-greatness to make a point. They had little status in the world when they were called, Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, saying, look how I got here. I did all this great stuff, and I deserve to be here in the presence of God. God's still at work in his people, pursuing his purposes in their calling. And what we see here is that God had an agenda in his church in Corinth, and their lowliness was not going to get in the way. Their lack of status or lack of wisdom was not going to get in the way. He had purpose with his people, because here's the real good news in verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, made manifest, right? We want to know what God is like. We want to know what God's wisdom is like. Look at the person of Jesus. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God has given them new status in the kingdom. You weren't wise to the world's standards, but now you have status in the kingdom of God. You are a beloved son and daughter. Paul says to the Colossians, you've been rescued from the domain of darkness. He says in Ephesians, you were dead and God in his mercy brought you to life. You've been made alive in Christ. Now, because of the mercy of God, we're sons, we're daughters, we're citizens, we are saints. With full authority in his kingdom to be with him, to have access to him, to become like him, to grow in our maturity and sanctification, and to do what he did, bringing the kingdom of God to this world. We can do that because our status has changed. And with this new status and this new identity which story are you believing? You've been rescued from one story, brought into another, and we live in this moment in time and history where both are colliding and clashing. And as much as it might be easier not to have a choice, you have a choice to live the story of God or live the story of the world. And our problem is we don't choose one or the other. We choose both. We choose both. And that makes us ineffective in the kingdom of God when we keep trying to pursue the wisdom and value systems of this world. To say it's, it's wise to have a rainy day fund, and so I'm not going gonna, gonna to spend, I'm going to be frugal, but I'm also not going to be generous. I'm just going to store up wealth in a bank account that sits There is wisdom according to the world's standards. That's folly to God. It's all going to pass away. You can't take it with you. Do not lay up treasures on this earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. When we try to pursue both stories, we are ineffective for the kingdom of God. And we find ourselves stuck. Have you ever found yourself stuck in your relationship with God? This is why. You are trying to chase both stories. And Paul says, it doesn't work like that. In the kingdom, you have status, you have authority. Your son, a daughter, a citizen, and saint, that comes with different marching orders. It comes with different responsibilities. It comes with a different storyline. Stop trying to taste the storyline of the world. Stop it. It will not give you satisfaction. Jesus says, I have come to give you life to the full. That is not, he's not talking about life in eternity, he's talking about life right now. Yes, we have eternal security and salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. He has also come to bring fullness and abundance in our life right now in him. Stop chasing the wisdom and the story of this world. Start pursuing the wisdom of God. Live into his story. So, Paul says in verse 31, As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We were lowly, we were weak, we were not wise according to the world's standards, but God brought us in, not that we could boast, but we could boast in him. Some people say, John, it doesn't make any sense. You don't make that much money. You have a small house and a bunch of kids, you probably don't have any savings, but how are you like living abundantly? How are you joyful? How are you not racked by fear and anxiety and depression? How are you able to be generous when there's a coworker in the office who is in need? It's not an opportunity to boast for yourself, but boast in the Lord. I would have never come up with this plan on my own. I'm boasting in the Lord. They themselves, the Corinthian church, demonstrates that God's wisdom triumphs over human wisdom. And so there's only one ground left to boast. That is in Jesus himself. One uh, commentator, one scholar who writes about this passage, Gordon Fee says, as it turns out, God has deliberately chosen the foolish things of this world, the cross and the Corinthian believers, as to remove forever from every human creature any possible grounds on their part of standing in the divine presence with something in their hands. Picture that for a moment. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Not a single thing that any of us possesses will advantage anybody before the living God. Not brilliance, clout, achievement, money, or prestige. So if we are bought into a different story, and we're trying to please and live a life following God, why are we chasing those things? Brilliance, clout, achievement, money, prestige. And why aren't we chasing the things that are of God? And then finally, Paul moves to the gospel message himself. So he kind of, he says, in the cross itself, this is foolishness to the world. He puts the spotlight on the church and says, you people are foolishness. You weren't anything special. God saved you, gave you a new status, and it confounds the world. And then he puts the spotlight back on the gospel message itself, even in how he delivered to them this gospel message. And 1 Corinthians 2, picking up. By the way, chapter headings like numbers are not always the most helpful chapter 2 does not mean a break in the story a new thought this is continuing the same thought all right so chapter 2 verse 1 and i came and i when i came to you brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of god with lofty speech or wisdom This is an intentional uh, part of Paul's ministry to them. We know the Corinthians were obsessed with sophistry, with wisdom, with eloquent public speaking as an art form. And so he said, I've come into you intentionally with a simple gospel, Christ Crucified. That's the gospel message. He had also just come from another city. Acts chapter 18 tells us. He's come from Athens, where he's delivered these flowery, eloquent, amazing speeches. And he was discouraged in how people were more impressed with the speeches than the content of his message. And so he sets his eyes on Corinth and says, I came proclaiming a simple gospel, Christ crucified. That's it. Not lofty speech, not wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Which, who makes up the cross? Like, if you're going to start a religion, why would you start there? Why would you start with the cross? It is foolishness. A poor, itinerant, peasant, Jewish rabbi moving from town to town, being put to death by the state. Does not sound very compelling, unless we are wrapped up in God's story and we know what he's on about. Paul's preaching in Corinth focused on the saving fact of Christ's crucifixion, a method of execution so heinous and awful. It's, we have become so accustomed to the cross and, and iconography over the last 2,000 some odd years. Chances are you have a cross somewhere in your house and it's lost its like dreadfulness to us. Like we're so accustomed to it. We see it all the time. This was a method of execution used by the Romans for the worst type of criminals and insurrectionists and terrorists. And this was the birth of the Christian movement in Jesus. This is not something you would talk about in polite company. I mean, think about the grossest thing you can think of. This is not something you talk about in polite company. No self-respecting sophist would do this. And Paul says, That's my point. I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom, but with the message of the gospel. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but of the power of God. As a preacher, this is a very comforting verse to me. I know nothing fancy, clever, eloquent I say will change anything in you, but it is the power of God that changes things in you. It's the power of God. Right back to where we started in verse 18. Paul came to the Corinthians a certain way and is writing back to them so that their faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That they would trust God and be formed by God and live in his story. And for Paul, this letter of 1 Corinthians is nothing short of wrestling for the affections and the allegiance of the Corinthian church away from the things of this world and towards Jesus Christ. Paul's helping the Corinthians here see their cultural blind spots as they relate to the city that they are in and as they relate to the gospel and helping them see how they had absorbed the value systems and stories of this world, maybe without even knowing it because it's affecting the church. They were being formed by the world around them. And we know that we are formed by all sorts of things by just waking up in the morning. We've done significant work in this area as a church, especially last spring in our teaching series, Practicing the Way of Jesus. You are formed by all kinds of things by simply waking up right by the things you do the people you hang out with you are being formed into something or someone or a whole lot of somethings or some ones what we do on a regular basis is what we become the things we do do something to us we become like the people we hang out with we are formed by our city our family of origin our workplace etc so the question is not are you being formed but how Are you being formed? The question is not, am I being formed into something, but what or who am I being formed into? Are you on track to becoming more like Jesus expressed in your person and personality or something else? If nothing were to change in your life and you were to look 30 years ahead, what kind of person are you? A person that looks more like Jesus or something else? The stories of this world are really powerful and insatiable and they capture our attention and we don't even have to try. The amount of advertisements you see on a daily basis is mind-boggling to a first-century person in Corinth. The stories of this world are powerful. It's why we continue to do things as a church that root us in the story of God. Every few years, all of our community groups go through something called the story formed way, rooting ourselves in the story of God. And so I remind you of the story, God, every single Sunday as we open the text together and as we sing songs that lead us towards Jesus, because we know in the six days in between, your attentions and affections will fade and will shift and will be focused on other things. And so we need moments to come together, lift up Jesus as King, and go out into our week more equipped and more empowered. And to the call from this text is really clear stop chasing the wisdom of the world. Chase the wisdom of God. That's it. The wisdom of God is going to be foolishness to this world. Don't let that detract you. People are going to think you're crazy and you're weird. Don't let that detract you because we know the wisdom of this world fades away. Maybe it works for a week or a month or a year and it fades away. But chase the wisdom of God. So to Paul, God's story... In the cross is foolishness to the world. But we know our entire faith rests on the truth of the cross. And he even goes so far to say in chapter 15 that if the cross isn't true, if the resurrection isn't true, our faith is futile. It's meaningless. Do we actually believe the power of the cross for our own lives? Not like as a moment in history or a a temporal, salvific thing that changed our eternity, but for actually regular life, day to day. Do you believe the power of the cross, this wholehearted dependence on God's power, not a temporary stage in our spiritual development, but an ongoing forever thing, not just the diving board, but the swimming pool. Do we believe the power of the cross? The truth of Jesus, him and crucified is not a basic teaching to be left by the wayside after you encounter him, but something to come back to every day. To Paul, God's story of his people, his gathered church, these called out ones are foolishness to the world. The way they live, what they believe, how we treat each other are all foolishness to an unbelieving world. Why would you sacrifice any comfort on your part to help somebody else in the church if you're buying into the world's wisdom? Right, take our season of prayer and fasting as an example. This is Have you tried to tell anyone in your life that's not a believer that you're fasting? For 14 days? It sounds crazy. It's foolishness to them. Why would you ever deny yourself of anything? In our consumeristic world, why would you ever deny anything to yourself that you want? Why? What's the point of that? It's utter foolishness to the world, but we know it's the wisdom of God. In a world that values this self-centeredness, why would you desire to deny anything that you want? In a world that prizes individualism, why would you choose to do life in community when you know it's going to cost you, when it's going to hurt you, when people are going to rub you the wrong way, you're going to be uncomfortable, when they're going to call you out on your stuff, when it's inconvenient? In a world that's naturalistic in nature, why would you worship God? If all life is is what you can see, hear, touch, smell, feel, why would you worship something you can't see, touch, smell, feel, hear? Have you ever thought about the fact, like, that your life as a Christian is a witness to those around you, is a counter story to those around you? In a world that lifts up materialism and pleasure, why would you give your money or your time or yourself to the Lord? to the church, to the city. It makes no sense. Have you ever thought about that when you tithe, when you are generous with your money, when you are generous in your time and how you serve the Lord and one another, you are telling a counter story to the world. You're saying, my wealth is not in riches in the world, it's in something else. My time does not all need to be my own. I can give of my time. I am not my own. I have been bought by the blood of Jesus. To Paul, God's story of the gospel message itself, not dressed up in clever arguments or flowery language, is the power of God to save and to redeem. Think about how you approach the church life. Like, do you need an inspirational talk to get your juices going on a Sunday? Why are we a little bit more into worship on the back end than on the front end? Do we really need someone up here, motivational speaker, to amp you up just to read your Bible for another six days to get recharged again on a Sunday? Isn't the message of the gospel enough? Paul says it is. It's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God on display. Is the gospel message alone enough to drive us to our knees in repentance and to our feet in worship? Stop trying to pursue the wisdom of this world and pursue the wisdom of God. Paul says, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. In this counterintuitive, countercultural faith we have in Jesus, communicating a counter-narrative to the world around us. That we can make different decisions, we can live differently. We are confident in those decisions and how we live because we know we are not storing up wisdom in this world. We are pursuing the wisdom of God. Are you prepared to look like an idiot to the world because you've bought into a different story? If you are not, I implore you, go back to the gospel of Jesus. Let it wash over you and remind you of what he has saved you from. Remind you of the new life you've had. In a world that prizes looking good, and smart, and having your life together, are you prepared to confound those expectations and look differently because you have bought into a different story? I'm gonna read Ephesians chapter two, the first few verses over you today to help remind us of what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to, to prepare us to worship God. And so if you will, stand up, and, uh, and I was going to say if you're comfortable, but even if you're not comfortable, just put out your hands right in front of you. Um, this is like nothing mystical, it's just like helping uh, shape our body and do things with our body that will like help shape our hearts. Uh, so it's an outward posture to represent something that's happening on the inside. So if you just put your hands in front of you, uh, open palms just like that, uh, ready to receive in a receiving posture. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, of the spirit that is at work now in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. And we by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them.